Now, I have to be honest, I, uh, I don't like getting particularly political in sermons. I know that's hard for some of you to believe, um, but I don't. Um, but I have to be honest that uh, I've struggled a lot in these last six weeks uh, under our new administration. Uh, I hope for the best, uh, and I hope that things go in a good direction, but... Uh, but I have to say, it seems like every time I wake up in the morning and turn on my computer, uh, there's something that comes up uh, that hits me in a very deep way. It, it, it's, for me, it, it's, it's become more of a spiritual angst. Uh, and it's so overwhelming that I felt I, I couldn't not speak about it in some way, shape, or form. Um, this past week, we uh, learned that the uh, administration will be promoting private prisons uh, prisons that have been shown uh, not only to be more expensive generally than publicly run prisons, but also tend to have a lot more prisoner abuses. We uh, have some environmental protections that have been rolled back, specifically around mining companies, um, and some of that waste can lead to potentially harming individuals, innocent people. We have the prospect of major changes in our healthcare system, uh, which I hope turn out well, but uh, unfortunately a lot of the proposals seem like uh, potentially millions of people will be without uh, affordable healthcare. Uh, this has real human consequences. People uh, who are suffering who might not be able to get the care they need um, and will continue to suffer or will be in the effort to try and discourage people from using care uh, co-pays and other things will be so high that people will not get the preventative care that they need uh, and it might end up costing us more in the end. These types of things, they scare me and they do assault me, I think, on a very deep level. Uh, immigration issues. The uh, New York Times this morning had an article about uh, how the administration's views on immigration have empowered uh, ICE agents, immigration customs and enforcement agents uh, around the country to uh, step up their level of enforcement of our federal immigration policies uh, and again, uh, some of the potential consequences, especially for our community uh, here in Houston, where there are a lot of undocumented people, uh, are frightening. And and I I have to I have to admit the I think part of the frustration, part of the uh, spiritual heaviness, comes from just a sense of powerlessness that I feel. That uh, you know some of these things, I just want to uh, try and do something to stop them, almost anything. But I feel like there's very little that I can do. That you just sort of have to sit back and hold on and pray and hope for the best. But when I hear uh, in this passage Jesus saying, you know, do you want to come up to the mountain? I'm like, yes, please take me, <laughs> take me up to the mountain. What about you? I wonder what's weighing down your heart this past week. I, I, I constantly think, I wonder whether or not there was a time in the past where, where people were less busy. I wonder whether that actually was the case. Um, I mean, everyone seems so busy now, but maybe that's always been the case. I don't really know. But I do know that it seems like uh, all of us are just racing around from one thing to another. Are you just feeling tired? What about uh, stuff at work? Perhaps you're someone who's gone to work every day for a long period of time and the work has become routine, it has become boring, it has become, a, uh, it has become drudgery. Perhaps you're someone who uh, has tensions within your family. 
tensions with your spouse, tensions with your children, difficulties dealing with your parents who are getting older, perhaps difficulties having to face the fact that uh, you're now alone. Wonder what's wearing you down. You hear this call from Jesus saying, "Come up to the mountain," and it's like, "Yes, I I want to get from here up to where you are." I have this great dream that we're going to have civil political discussions sometime soon, where we can sit down and say, "Hey, we all agree that our community needs to take care of people." And how we go about that is an issue of public policy. And let's talk about public policy from different ideas. Let's get different solutions. Let's have conversations, real engagement across different uh, sides of the aisle, but at least with an eye to saying we want to make our community, we want to promote the general welfare of our community. I dream that that can happen. But I'm sitting there walking up the mountain with Jesus. I'm like, this might happen, hopefully. Now, maybe you're walking up the mountain and you're thinking about a nice vacation that might be coming up. I don't know what the best vacation for you would be. Is it, are you the type of person that likes to lie on the beach and you know, have your feet up underneath a, an awning and be sipping a Mai Tai? Or are you someone who's like, vacation for you is like going on like, uh, an adventure 100-mile marathon and that's your vacation? Uh, or running and seeing different sites, but just something to get away, something that's just wonderful, something that just uh, you know, fills your heart with joy. You dream that uh, all of a sudden your, uh, the arguments, the tensions that might be at home just evaporate. Yeah. Uh, dreams are a little more mundane. Uh, the Astros will win, actually win the World Series this year. <laughs> or perhaps the price of oil will go back to $100. In chapter 16 of Matthew, just before our passage that we had for today, in chapter 16 of Matthew, uh, there's the famous incident at Caesarea Philippi where uh, Peter proclaims Jesus as the Christ. And then, if you recall, immediately after the, afterwards, Jesus predicts that he has to go to Jerusalem, undergo great suffering, and die. And this weighs very heavily on the minds of the apostles weighed down with this. What does this mean for them? What does this mean for their leader? And again, Peter speaks up and you know, sort of disputes Jesus on this. And then Jesus has the famous line, get behind me, Satan. That's in the passage just before this. And as they're feeling worn down, as they're afraid of what the future holds, uh, the last line that Jesus has in chapter 16, the last line before our passage for today, is where Jesus promises them, there are some of you here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of you here are going are to see the kingdom and taste it. And then six days go by, and Jesus picks three of them out and says, let's go up to a mountain. Now, these are good Jews. Um, and they'll know that in Exodus 24, for instance, after six days went by, Moses took three of his companions and took them up the mountain for an experience with God on Mount Sinai. You can imagine the anticipation in their minds thinking, this is the time, this is it, this is it, we're the ones, this is going to happen. And they're walking up the mountain, and after they get to the top of the mountain, all of a sudden, Jesus himself, his form transforms, and he's, and he's in, a, in a form like an angel. It's like, you know, you can imagine Peter and James and John being like, this is it, this is the moment, I know it. 
And then Moses and Elijah show up. Now, Moses and Elijah, according to Jewish tradition at the time, were two people who did not die. Uh, these are two people who come back from heaven. Yet another sign that this is it. This is the moment. You know, Peter even says, it's good for us to be here, he responds. Like, this is fantastic. And he volunteers to build three tabernacles. Now, that might seem like a very odd thing to propose at a time like this. But uh, in the book of Zechariah, anyone who's interested in like late Second Temple Judaism, Zechariah was a, a book that people read a lot because it has a lot of predictions of the end times. And one of the predictions of the end times in Zechariah is that it will come at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. So it makes sense for Peter to be like, this is it. Like, let me make some booths. Like, let's do this. And then a bright light comes on. And there's this voice from God that says, you know, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. And I can just see them being like, all right, all right. This, and, then, and then the voice says, listen to him. And then they fall to their faces. Again, maybe it's overcome by the bright light, fall to their faces. And there's that next line that says they're overcome with fear. And I was wrestling this past week. I'm like, what, what were they afraid of? And at first glance, it's like, well, they're afraid of this great theophany, this great appearance of God. But, I mean, Peter certainly wasn't afraid when all these other things were happening. I mean, all of a sudden, your, your, your sort of teacher turns into an angel. You know, these people who are dead show up. Um, you know, this is something that might cause you some fear. I kept thinking, what, why is he afraid? Maybe, maybe Peter and James and John are there and their heads are down because of the light and they see the light go away and the noises go away and they realize that they're going to have to go back down the mountain. That their great dreams didn't happen. The things that they wanted to have happened didn't come to pass. That that reality of the suffering and death that Jesus is going to face is actually the real reality they're going to have to face. What that might mean for them. So after this great elation, they have this great crash. It's just chilling, cold fear takes them. So part of me wonders why we get into our heads that that things will actually be different, you know? I mean, I think back to <clears throat> 2008 uh, when you know, Obama was running for office and there was this great hope. There was a sense of after the uh, disagreements and divisions under George W. Bush that a lot of the country felt and even people in the Republican Party felt that all of a sudden, you know, Barack Obama was going to unite us together. There was this great hope. This is so wonderful. How could we have been so naive? Or, you know, you get offered that dream job, and you've always wanted this job, and you get this job, and you show up, and you realize, oh, yeah, even your dream job has got drudgery. Or maybe you're, you're on your wedding day, and this is amazing, and everything's happy and joyful, and you're like, this is great. This couldn't be any better. Oh, wonderful. It's always going to be this way. Life sometimes just seems to be going along the same way. For a certain while, it does get empty. 
This past week, I went to a rally at the Mantra Center. Um, this was a rally in response to uh, the president's actions to rescind um, a letter that the Obama administration had issued about uh, the provisions of Title IX. I know it's a bit confusing, but... Uh, the, uh, and this was a big deal because it was specifically geared towards transgender students. And I went to this rally, and it wasn't, it wasn't particularly large at start, but it got to be about 100 people. And I was listening to the speeches, and one of the nice things about not being a speaker is that you can actually listen to the speeches and have your own moment there. And I, I couldn't help but think back to 2008. I remember in 2008, uh, when the president got elected, President Obama got elected, on, in his victory speech, in his acceptance speech, uh, he mentioned gay people. His acceptance speech. And involuntarily, I actually started to cry at this. I was with the students I was working with at the time as a chaplain at Harvard, and I, I was just overcome with emotion because I never expected the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, to actually say anything positive about gay people coming from his... I never, it never, never occurred to me that that would ever happen. And when it happened, I was just... I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what to say. And as I was thinking there, I imagined what it must have been like last year for transgender students where you have... Uh, the defeat of the Equal Rights Ordinance here in Houston, all over this minute bathroom stuff. You have the HB2 bill being passed in North Carolina, and in response, the administration, President Obama, got up and said, we're going, to, we're going to extend these Title IX gender protections to include gender identity. Imagine if you, and then Loretta Lynch, the, the Attorney General, I don't know if you remember this, she got up and she said, we are with you, transgender kids, and we want you to say that we will defend you. Imagine if you're that kid. Imagine how that must have felt to have the President of the United States say, you exist, you matter, and I am in your court. I mean, that's powerful. And then imagine I must have been felt when a new administration comes in and said, oh yeah, we're rescinding all that. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, again, I found myself, as I kept thinking about this, just overwhelmed by the, by the gravity and, and intensity of it. And yet, as the, as the speeches went on, even though I knew that we weren't going to get good coverage, and we didn't, uh, for this. It probably isn't going to make much of a difference. But I realized, I'm like, look at how much change has happened, though. Like, ten years ago, we would never have been talking about transgender rights, and here we are. Who knows what the future will hold, but we're making progress. These people are standing up. Words are actually being spread. This actually is something here. And so I left that rally a little bit better. A little bit more elated. It's almost as though as, as I was lying down there, Jesus came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, do not be afraid. Maybe you experience similar things in your job. A colleague comes over or your boss comes over and says, you know what, I just wanted to say well done. And you really needed to hear that. Or your kid with whom you've been having arguments all of a sudden gives you this really sweet birthday gift. Or she had put all that time into and you're like, you know what? Or you're lying there at night uh, with the people, with the person you love and you look across and you know, and you're reminded of why you fell in love with that person. You feel that hand on your shoulder saying, do not be afraid. Now, I think as a preacher, there's this sense that uh, we sort of walk around with, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we sort of walk around in this constant transfiguration moment. Um, it's like, oh, you're a preacher, so, you know, you're clearly, like, imbued with the presence of God all the time, right? 
Uh, I'll give you a hint. No, it's not true for me. <laughs> Maybe the preacher down the street. But when I... But when I read this story, the part that resonates with me the most is that part at the end, that part where, yeah, you might have these great moments of going up and down, of great hopes and great, uh, and great uh, sort of fears, and yet there are those times, those moments where it feels as though God does put God's hand on my shoulder and says, do not be afraid. And it's those moments that then allow me to carry on and keep walking down that mountain. And I picture those, those disciples walking down the mountain with Jesus, having gone through this amazing experience and in all this different emotional, uh, all these different emotional places, but being reassured even though that dark future still, still looms. Because they know that whatever that path holds, wherever they go, that they won't be walking that path alone. At that makes all the difference.